0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This episode is brought to you by Appeal. Appeal is a plant-based protective layer that helps produce last up to twice as long. Learn more at appeal.com. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I am your host, Katie Kiefer, and um, it's time for our final monthly roundup with the one and only Leah Douglas. Leah, if you have not been following my show over the last nine months, um, is a regular guest. Uh, she is a journalist covering food and agriculture from Washington, D.C., where she focuses on corporate power, consolidation, regulation, big business, and political economy as they those issues relate to food, agriculture, labor, Land and the environment. Um, she is an associate editor and staff writer at the Food and Environment Reporting Network, otherwise known as Fern F E R N. If you're not familiar with Fern, highly recommend it. Um, really, supply you know support this fantastic uh, and very unusual, innovative partnership of. Um, Journalists. It's hard to explain in a short order, but anyway, just go to their website, check it out. Um, Leah was the 2020 recipient of the National Farmers Union Milt Haeckel Award for Excellence in Agricultural Reporting. And indeed, that's not the least of her brilliance. And she was also a member of the 2019-2020 cohort of the New Economies Reporting Project Finance Solutions Fellowship. You're just such a busy girl, Leah. It just makes me feel incredibly inadequate. Every time I read your CV, I'm like, what is wrong with me? I mean, yes, I can make a mean apple walnut cake, but can I get the Milt Hagle Award? No. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) how are you doing down there in Washington? You guys get a lot of snow?
2: We got a little bit of snow. Yeah, it's finally starting to feel like winter around here, which is nice. Mm, I guess. I had to shovel snow for over
1: an hour because I forgot to garage my car last night. I don't know how I forgot to garage my car because normally whenever there's a storm, I put my car in the garage just so a tree doesn't fall on it. But last night, I didn't think about it. And so this morning, I spent a good hour and change moving snow so that the plow could come in and not hit my car. So there you go. But I did get plowed out and that's kind of a miracle up here in this frozen tundra of where I live in Rhode Island. Um, anyway, so let's get on with the business at hand. Um, Leah, how's, what's the latest on the big COVID map? Are you still getting current?
2: Are you getting any current data or are we still lagging behind by several months? Yes. Yeah. We have, um, some current data coming in. So, um, you know, as folks know, I've been tracking, uh, COVID nineteen cases at food processing, meat packing facilities, and on farms uh, across the country for almost eight months now, and uh, I have a daily um, update to those figures on the FERN website, uh, which folks can check out, um, updated every weekday. So as of today, uh, there's over seventy seven thousand uh, cases recorded in that data set. Um, About 50,000, 51,000 of those are meatpacking workers. Uh, So the bulk of them are still meatpacking cases. And I would say um, there's up-to-date information coming in from uh, a small handful of states that are releasing either cumulative totals of uh, cases among workers in these sectors or um, outbreak specific information um, and many other states that are not releasing that information. So I'm still getting some up-to-date figures and still filling some gaps. Um, from even the spring and summer months, using public records and um, other ways to sort of put together what was happening at some of these outbreaks in in the spring months.
1: Yeah, they make it very hard to get that information. We're gonna we're gonna talk about that again in a few minutes. But um, in the meantime, I wanted to talk about your most recent piece, which you wrote in tandem with the Brown Institute for Media Innovation. Um, tell us about the
2: piece and and
1: and your partnership with the Brown Institute for Media Innovation.
2: Definitely. So the Brown Institute has this incredible project uh, called Documenting COVID-19, which is essentially an open repository for documents that have been obtained through FOIA public records requests Mm -hmm. um, across the country. So uh, the center has worked with journalists and newsrooms in all different states to try to get both local, state and federal uh, public records together to try to understand um, COVID through a a bunch of different lenses. And one of those is through the, the ag and farming sector. Um, so I collaborated with. Uh, we have an ongoing collaboration filing these these public records requests and trying to understand, um, as I said, you know what's what's data that we still don't have about how um, COVID has spread. You know some outbreaks that haven't been recorded, and also how local and state officials have responded to the pandemic in the food sector over the last nine months. Uh, so this most recent story, which came out last week, um, it looks at in North Carolina specifically some cases that were previously unreported at outbreaks at meatpacking plants in the state. Uh, There's been different approaches that the state of North Carolina has taken to reporting uh, outbreaks at meatpacking plant facilities. In general, the state is releasing cumulative totals of how many outbreaks there have been and how many workers have been sickened. Um, As a result, there's been some blind spots to where specifically there have been outbreaks in the state and exactly how many cases there have been at different points in the pandemic. Um, so our story found uh, that looking at 10 specific uh, meatpacking plants, the case counts at those facilities uh, were actually 75% higher in the spring than has, has been reported publicly um, at all in the, in the pandemic. Um, there are nearly 2,000 workers sick at these facilities, which are owned by companies like Tyson Foods and Pilgrim's Pride, um, which is about 800 cases more than had ever been reported in the media or by public health officials. Um, And we also found uh, through these records that uh, we found the location of 12 outbreaks at meatpacking plants that previously had not been reported. Um, Mm. So it really helps to flesh out a little bit of a picture of um, what was going on uh, in the spring and summer months at these facilities when the state wasn't uh, reporting um, all of this information through its uh, COVID dashboard or to reporters.
1: Yeah, right. Well, I, I was very struck by the disparities in numbers that uh, one of your charts illustrated in that piece. Um, specifically, there was a Smithfield plant uh, in Clinton, North Carolina, which reported 21 cases, but the actual uh, number of cases was 170. So, you know, given the way COVID spreads, meaning that, you know, one person can infect, I don't know, whatever it is up to, I I, I won't even venture to guess what that is. But but, given that discrepancy in reporting um, and also the the ongoing refusal of meat packers to essentially protect their workers and and I think at that point they were paying them to stay home, but i don 't know if that's still happening um, but but what what was the impact on the community health around it? Were you able to um, track any of those numbers by extrapolating from these heightened uh, case numbers that you were able to discover
2: through FOIA? Well, what it definitely tells us is that the community surrounding these facilities didn't have a clear picture and actually has never had a clear picture of exactly how many workers were sick at each of these plants. And mm-hmm. to reiterate, you know, the, the documents that we got were a snapshot from one day in June. Um, So presumably the case counts varied from that one day, either before or after that date. Um, sure. And we only have information from that one day that we were able to capture in the records request. Uh, so, you know, one of the one of the issues that comes up a lot when I talk about data reporting with public health experts and labor advocates and other reporters is just the importance of community knowledge, having information about, um, you know, which facilities and which neighborhoods and communities have outbreaks, uh, just so that people can make informed decisions about how to go about their day, and sure. also so that workers at these facilities have a clear picture of how many of their coworkers are sick. We've heard a lot of reports from meatpacking workers in particular that um, companies aren't always transparent or aren't always proactive in telling workers exactly how many of uh, their colleagues are sick and where those people worked in the plant. So what the exposure profile of another colleague might be. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is it is worrying to find that, you know, the information was not made available when it was in the hands of the public health department.
1: Oh, it's, I, it's just absolutely outrageous. I want you to talk a little bit about how you do obtain these statistics um, and, and, then, and and how hard it is to actually get what you can feel confident are fairly accurate statistics, um, you know, especially sort of giving the way you aggregate information from various different pools. Um, you know, what, what are the hoops you have to jump through to, to even start with the project like this? I, I kind of want people to understand how hard this is
2: for you or for any journalist sure. for that matter. Sure, definitely. So there's a few information streams at this moment that um, I'm relying on most. Uh, one of them is, as I said, there are states that are regularly releasing information. So um, some states that I look to their databases each week: um, Arkansas, Kansas, North Carolina has those cumulative totals. Um, states like Colorado and Oregon have a really thorough lists of workplace outbreaks. So you can see, um, this is true in Los Angeles County, and California as well. You can see exactly which businesses have. Um, current and in some cases also resolved outbreaks and how many people are sick or were sick, um, and how many workers died if that was the case. Um, so there is information being updated on a biweekly or weekly basis in in some of those states. Um, and there's also you know news reports coming out in some cases where there are new outbreaks or um, where other other newsrooms have done investigations that you know plugged some um, some gaps in data that that had previously uh, not been there. So. Um, that's that's two streams. And then also the public records uh, venue, you know, that I'm pursuing is to try to um, solicit information, especially in states where I have gotten those cumulative totals. So I know that there's, you know, been 20, say, outbreaks in the food processing sector, but I don't know what companies or what specific facilities. Um, and I'm wondering if that information might be available through public records requests when it's not available Um, just on the state website. So Mm -hmm. um, it's kind of a hodgepodge approach because there isn't um, a standardized uh, reporting mechanism, um, either through like a government agency at the state or federal level. Um, And the industry also doesn't have a standardized um, data reporting process and is generally not um, revealing the the results of of their (laughs) own internal worker testing uh, to reporters. I, I do find it kind of astonishing that the states, I mean,
1: okay, It's clear that the government, federal government under Trump decided that they just weren't going to, you know, they were going to let the states handle this, as Republicans like to give states their power, except for when it's power over regulating women's bodies and things like that, which they don't seem to mind doing from a federal standpoint. But anyway, but I do find it fascinating that even the states themselves have not been able to successfully coordinate a response that would allow them, either through the Department of Labor or the Department of Health or both. Um, to you know, track these outbreaks and to and to be able to deliver in real time uh, information to communities to help them protect themselves. That I find incredible. So, with that said, we're going to come back to that um, to that concept in a second. But we're going to take a quick, quick break for a sponsor drop. Stay tuned, people. We're going to talk more with Leah Douglas about uh, COVID in our uh, food system. Um, so please stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by Appeal. Here at Heritage Radio Network, we care about reducing waste across our food system, from farms to home kitchens. We know that about half of the produce we grow ends up in the trash. We all want to enjoy produce at peak freshness and reduce the amount that gets thrown away. That's where Appeal comes in. Appeal is a plant based protective layer that helps produce last up to twice as long. It's edible invisible, and imitates how peels naturally protect fruits and vegetables. Because here's the thing, less waste doesn't just mean we're throwing less food away. It also means we waste less water, energy, and other resources that go into growing produce. A peel works with nature to reduce waste across the food system, from the farm to the kitchen. Appeal helps us conserve our precious resources to ensure we have fresh food to meet our growing need. Appeal, food gone good. Learn more at appeal.com. Okay, we're back with Leah Douglas um talking about COVID in specifically meat packing but food processing in general. Um and we were just talking about how Leah is able to obtain her information. Um one of the things I wanted to point out is like for example when you were saying, you know, the the chart that you identified in your piece with the the Brown um uh Media Innovation Center or, or I'm sorry if I'm boggling that number that name brown institute for media innovation when you were writing that article um, a lot of the numbers that you cited were from way back in june and and that that sort of speaks again to your difficulties in obtaining current information but why is there such a long lag uh, between reporting these cases um and you know current and current events if as
2: as it were Yeah, that's a great question. And in this case of this story, it's because of the nature of public records requests, the requests that we put into the state. Um, you know, had a wide window in terms of um, when we were requesting data from, you know, which dates, and this was the information we got, was from June. Uh, The public records request process is, is in most cases, you know, tends to be delayed. Uh, Responses can take, um, you know, months. I mean, certainly years in some cases. Um, But in our case, you know, we have waited for a significant amount of time for most of these. Um, for even the responses we have gotten. So that's that's why in this case, um, you know, unfortunately, the data is from June, not from more recently. I mean, we do know that in North Carolina, because the state um, has updated there um, and in the last few months started releasing some more information. We have um, updated figures each week as to how many meatpacking workers are sick. Um, so the state is aggregating that information. Um, over 4,000 meatpacking workers in North Carolina have contracted COVID at over 40 uh, facilities. And now we do have a pretty comprehensive understanding of where all those facilities are, um, in part due to our reporting and in, in part due to reporting at other newsrooms. Um, so at least we have been able to put together somewhat of a comprehensive list of those facilities. Um, but all of those uh, cases are still not uh, linked to facilities. So there's still some holes in that picture.
1: Wow. Yeah, absolutely. Now, to go back to the article and and then also an article that was cited in your embedded in your article, which I read with great interest, when the North Carolina Department of Health and Human Services announced that they were planning on releasing data on the cases in the various plants, there was quite a bit of drama around that um, with several of the county health directors. Can you describe that sort of exchange between the various parties? You know, one woman was saying, I'm going to release this data. And these other two guys jumped on her and were like, no, you're not. What was going on
2: there? Yes. So in early May, um, our records, and as you said, prior reporting had also found that um, the state of North Carolina was moving towards um, and actually was planning to begin releasing um, the information that, that I said was is currently not being released, the specific facility names, what county, how many cases, how many deaths, um, you know, much more akin to what's happening in states like Colorado and Oregon that have a more comprehensive outbreak list. Um, and this, you know, was likely due to requests from worker advocates and uh, media for this information. So the state sure. in, in early May, which is, you know, when really part of the height of the outbreak in the meatpacking sector, was going to start reporting that information. And our records request um, drew drew out uh, some email exchanges between state and local health officials, the state side announcing that they were going to begin this, and the local officials generally resisting that. Uh, the justification from local officials was that essentially more detailed reporting would alienate the meat industry. And to the mm-hmm. extent that their local processing plant in their county had cooperated with worker testing or had cooperated with some amount of public reporting, uh, they would be less likely to do so if the state was reporting um, so much information to the public. Uh, so the, the state ultimately rolled back its plans to, to uh, release all that information. Um, and the prior reporting on how this had had played out uh, found that there was a lot of confusion, um, incomplete information being shared between all parties, and industry pressure also playing a role in the health department's, uh, the state health health department's decision making about whether to release that that comprehensive data.
1: So, so just to be clear about this, what you're saying is that because of influence from the meatpacking industry, people were statewide were placed at greater risk because they didn't want to release information that would have helped protect the communities in which those meatpacking plants are placed am i am i understanding that correctly
2: I would say that, you know the the interest of the local officials as as I read them in these uh, in these emails was to try to preserve as much of a working relationship with these facilities as possible these meatpacking facilities. And they perceived that the uh, move towards more information being shared was at odds with the industry cooperating with worker testing and other types of public health measures that they were taking in may when when really there was a crisis going on um in all these different counties. So again, that's refracted through, um, the opinions of local health officials, that's not um, through an industry spokesperson. Uh, but right. there has also been other reporting that show that the industry, not just in North Carolina, but in other states, um, the meat industry and private industry in general, has resisted uh, reporting on where where outbreaks are and how many workers are sick um, in the interest of protecting their image, um, in the interest of, you know, they say worker privacy concerns, although labor <laughs> advocates have said that there's not really a privacy concern with Anonymized data being released, uh, but anyway, so this, this story helps to illustrate how all of these different pressure points are being uh, are being uh, sort of in, t- in tension with one another when this complicated decision about whether to release data is being made. And ultimately, it would be the argument of you know trans advocates for more transparency that yes, having more information available about where outbreaks are would help the community make better decisions about how to manage the pandemic.
1: Yeah, I mean, astonishing. So. Um, I, I further read, uh, in an article in the Raleigh News and Observer, um, that the meatpacking plants are not, and this speaks to part of your answer before, but they are not legally required to report their COVID numbers to the Department of Health and Human Services. And I find that kind of astonishing. And I, I wondered if you, I, I know you've sort of addressed that in your last answer, but just like, do you... <laughs> like what? <laughs> like how the hell do these people get away with this shit? You know what I mean? Like it just blows my mind that they're getting away with this. So actually, I won't even ask you to respond to that. I'm going to go onward and say, um, in the same piece uh, in the Raleigh News and Observer, I read uh, that regulatory guidance. For meat packing is supposed to come from both the Department of uh, Agriculture and the Department of Labor, and the regulatory guidance that I'm you know assuming as part of that would be having to report. Uh, illness and disease within their workforce. Um, so what 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 role have the Department of Agriculture and the Department of Labor been able to play in ensuring food and worker safety uh, during the pandemic? I mean, are, are they able to mandate the testing, distancing, masking, PPE? Are they conveying any real-time numbers of cases and deaths? Or are they kind of just sitting back and letting this all
2: play out? because it's politically expedient. So this has definitely been a hot a hot button issue throughout the entire pandemic is the role of um, Department of Agriculture and specifically the Occupational Safety and Health Administration within mm-hmm. the Department of Labor in regulating what's happening at, at food facilities and particularly in meatpacking. Um, early in the pandemic, um, the, the Department of Labor and the CDC issued a voluntary guidance for the meatpacking sector for how to protect workers from COVID. And it contains right. a lot of information about how to implement social distancing, masking, um, physical barriers, and so on—a uh, range of recommendations. However, um, essentially, that uh, that that guidance is not enforceable. It's not imposing mandatory um, safety guidelines onto the meat packers. And this has been a major point of concern. Congressional Democrats, very early in the pandemic, were pushing OSHA to, <clears throat> excuse me, to pass um, you know an enforceable workplace safety standard for workplaces being affected by COVID. Uh, and that's been um, an ongoing political football, nothing has come of it um, yet. Uh, the Biden, uh, candidate Biden prior to the election had pledged to implement some sort of enforceable um, safety standard and particularly has cited uh, the pandemic's impact on meat packing plants as a reason for that. So that's gonna, I think be a live issue in the new administration. Uh, but to answer your question about um, the data aggregation, not No federal agency is um, publicly releasing any type of aggregated um, data on cases, worker cases or deaths in, in the food sector. Um, and uh, I am unaware of how what the collaboration is behind the scenes with states, um, but the only information, the only federal reports that have come out about COVID cases and outbreaks in the food sector has come from the CDC. There was a couple of reports released um, in the summer and fall analyzing a specific three month or four month span in the spring, um, which CDC solicited uh, voluntary reporting from states on outbreaks in the sector in in their um, in their states. So that's mm-hmm. the extent to which I understand the federal government's efforts to collect data in on this issue. And today we
1: learned, I think it was today in the New York Times, uh, there was a report on. Um, on the fact that the CDC had been subjected to so much uh, political pressure that uh, any time, sort of, <laughs> you know, real information was about to be released by the CDC, it was either squashed, or downplayed, or um, swept under the rug by the uh, Trump administration. I mean, you know, the the when the history books are written about how this was managed in this country it's, it's going to be a breathtaking experience for all of us who are still allowed to read that because I can't, I can't think of a, a nation that has so abjectly failed to protect, uh, it's not only its population, but also it's, it's, you know, uh, essential systems like the food system. It's just mind blowing. Um, anyway, sorry. I'm once again, editorializing. So, but to pull the scope back for a second now in a Tyson pork plant in Waterloo, Iowa, uh, a suit was filed on behalf of five workers who have died of COVID, and they were. And it has been alleged that the interpreters uh, employed, because as people may or may not know, many of the workers who work in these uh, meatpacking plants are, um, uh, you know, uh, immigrants uh, who many of whom do not speak English. So they have interpreters, uh, and the interpreters were instructed to lie about the existence of COVID in the plant, something which you alluded to earlier in the show. Um, this, by the way, is the same plant where they were betting on the number of cases and fatalities. Um, presumably, this kind of suit is the suit is the kind of suit that Mitch McConnell is holding up uh, COVID relief package for in order to squelch any accountability on the part of industry. Um, can you comment on how many similar suits are being brought against companies like
2: Tyson, Smithfield, et cetera? Sure. So definitely this issue of corporate immunity is at the the core of the next stimulus package and uh, being negotiated uh, right now um, at the end of uh, this Mm -hmm. week and into next week. So uh, we could potentially see some resolution in one way or another on this um, very soon, but it's been an ongoing issue in the negotiations around the the most, uh, this current COVID relief package that, Um, Congressional Democrats have been opposed to a provision pushed by and supported by Mitch McConnell um, to provide immunity to corporations from lawsuits around particularly workplace exposure to COVID, which would dramatically affect uh, the meatpacking and food processing sector, where we know uh, tens of thousands of workers have been sickened um, in the workplace. And so this is the type of lawsuit uh, that uh, would presumably be uh, within, um, you know, under the protection of this type of broad immunity Um, I can't I can't uh, say that I have a knowledge of specifically how many similar suits are being brought, but there are definitely there is definitely a lot of litigation going on to test, um, you know, how much corporations can be held held accountable for workplace exposure to COVID. And there's different uh, types of approaches being taken. Um, So that is going to be, if not an issue that is uh, resolved before the holidays, something that in the new year will continue to be, um, I think, something to closely watch in the sector. Um, and to loop back on the, the Tyson plant in Waterloo, just a news um, update yesterday, we learned that um, there was an the investigation into the, the managers who were allegedly betting on um, how many workers would contract COVID. Right. Um, Tyson did report that they fired uh, seven managers as a result of that investigation. So um, just in case folks were were wondering what happened there. Yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. So what? You know what I mean? It's like uh, Temple Grandin always says that it t- it's from the top down. You know, it's so it's clearly they may, you know, sure, they scapegoated a bunch of these managers, but that corporate culture comes from the top. And I don't you know, this particular plant may have been unlucky enough to get caught, but I'm willing to bet that there are many other plants with very similar profiles where very similar bedding pools or other types of i don't know what to call them uh you know speculation on <laughs> on how many of their unfortunate uh illegal aliens uh are going to be sickened and die from this disease because let's remember that meat packing and food processing in general but meat packing especially loves to employ people who are not documented, because when they are not documented, they don't exist legally. And that means that they can be abused in any kind of way, uh, including not being allowed to go to the bathroom, uh, you know, not being allowed to take time off when they're sick. Um, And this is pre-COVID, folks. This isn't just for now. This is forever, and why the meatpacking industry uh, is deserving of so much scrutiny and so much more regulation than they have heretofore been uh, subjected to. I want to go back one, to one thing that we were talking about with OSHA, you know, Occupational Safety and Hazard Administration, um, which has been basically a wall throughout the COVID pandemic. Um, but one of the things that we should um, acknowledge here in terms of like whether or not departments of labor have uh, issued these voluntary guidances, I want to say two things about that. First of all, voluntary guidances mean absolutely nothing. They are nothing but lip service uh, to assuage the hand-wringing, uh, quote-unquote, libtards. Um, but, but also... Um, they're not at the same time that OSHA is mandate is suggesting that they follow these guidances, the meat packers themselves are actually speeding up their lines. Right? Did you have you reported at all on that, Leah? The fact that there's so many waivers have been granted to increase line speeds in poultry and pork that it's now like kind of, you know, the norm rather than the exception.
2: Yeah, so I did do an investigation a few months ago looking at line speed waivers, specifically as they relate to COVID outbreaks. And Mm -hmm. um, at the time, um, you know, it's worth mentioning that only a few of the handful of uh, waivers that have been issued were issued during the pandemic. Uh, And shortly thereafter, USDA uh, paused the line waiver program. There has been, um, USDA pursued some additional rulemaking around increasing line speeds uh, that Um, has not, hasn't been uh, formalized and, uh, you know, may not be before the end of this administration. Um, But at the time, I found that um, at plants that had received those waivers uh, to raise their line speeds, which, you know, we don't, it would be impossible to know for sure whether they have or not from a a reporting perspective, but uh, they have received the waiver to 40% of those plants had had, uh, had experienced COVID-19 outbreaks. Uh, compared to 15% of, um, you know, all meat packing plants in the country, according Mm -hmm. to the data I've collected for Fern. So, um, you know, when I was recording that story, what I heard from workplace advocates was that uh, faster line speed essentially requires uh, workers to uh, work more closely together. um, And inversely, if the line speed was slower, it would allow workers to physically distance from one another. Um, And uh, the result being that worker advocates have been, uh, really arguing that line speeds should be slowed as a as a way to uh, potentially curtail the spread of COVID at these facilities. Uh, there hasn't necessarily been an industry effort to to um, to uh, slow the lines that I've heard about. Mm-hmm. Um, they also argue that um, you know they have not been increasing the line speed at most facilities. Um, so anyway, it's it's another issue that you know has been you know the line speed at meat processing plants has been an issue for many years and will surely continue to be one. And encourage folks to keep following that in a new year. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I
1: I just, because there was a new whistleblower uh, suit brought by the Government Accountability Project, I, I interviewed Amanda Hitt about that a few weeks ago, um, that was talking about just that issue that the, you know, higher line speed means workers closer together, means more COVID, means more fatalities. So, um, but the industry, you know, is, is using uh, COVID as an excuse to ramp up their line speeds and to make another assault on what was a slowdown during the Obama administration because as you just mentioned this is this is a problem that has been ongoing not just in the last 4 years but literally for decades i mean ever since the himp himp program uh, which was an experimental uh, program similar to hazard analysis and critical control points, otherwise known as HACCP. Um, Sorry, Leah, I know you know all this, but just for people who maybe don't follow meat as much as I do. Um, And so they've been trying to push this hemp program. I can't remember what the acronym stands for, but it was a way to increase line speeds uh, in poultry and pork. And Amanda pointed out to me that they are now trying to implement this in the cattle industry. Um, And, you know, these are plants that are already processing tens of thousands of animals a week. I mean, I mean, I don't want to go off on a long tangent about it, but it's just like incredible to me that they want to speed up 145 birds per minute to 175 birds per minute. And at the same time, of course, this particular program, the HIMP program mandated that there were fewer federal inspectors, fewer USDA inspectors on any given line and more of the company's own inspectors. So You know the food safety implications for this are terrifying, and all I can say is Bill Marler and his partners at Marler and Clark get better get ready for a very brisk season (laughs) once the COVID thing gets over with. You know, because if this stuff stays, if these guys continue to get their waivers, which hopefully they won't in the next administration, but you know, there's so much. What do you? Okay, let's forget about that. Let's talk about Vilsack before I let you go. What do you think?
2: Can you say? What you think? I don't have a personal comment, but I can share some of my reporting that I did on Vilsack's nomination. Go right ahead, girlfriend. Great. Let's So I actually just filed a story today that folks can look out for it tomorrow, uh, looking at Vilsack's record, specifically in the dairy sector. So, yes. So, um, you know, the first week after Vilsack's nomination brought a lot of really worthy reporting on his, his track record on civil rights, um, also some on his track record on, uh, you know, market consolidation, which is another issue. I know that yes. I followed, have followed closely under the Obama administration. Uh, So this story was was complimenting that to look specifically at dairy. And I spoke to um, some dairy farmers who uh, were particularly concerned, um, in addition to his track record under Obama, that uh, Vilsack has worked for the past four years for the Dairy Export Council, which is a dairy industry trade group that promotes milk exports and is an arm of uh, the Dairy Management, uh, Dairy Management Inc., which is the organization that runs the Dairy Checkoff Program. Um, For folks who aren't familiar, the checkoff program essentially Um, is a marketing program for milk commodities. Um, Such a program exists for about two dozen commodities run by, uh, the programs are run by USDA. Um, So essentially, uh, Vilsack went to work for dairy industry trade group in the interim between when he left the Obama administration and now coming back uh, presumably into the Biden administration. Uh, So it'll it'll be interesting uh, to see how that plays with uh, farmers. Some of the responses I got were pretty concerned. Um, Under Vilsack, uh, a lot of farmers were disappointed that more action wasn't taken to really reform uh, what they see as major issues in the dairy sector, particularly overproduction and low domestic milk prices. We know that the number of dairy farms has been consistently falling very dramatically in the U.S. and uh, has not particularly slowed, didn't particularly slow under Obama and hasn't since Um, So there's some hope that in the new administration, um, you know, that certainly folks are committed to petitioning Vilsack around some of the same issues. uh, But there is concern that, uh, you know, in addition to um, what's perceived to be a poor record on civil rights and other issues that, um, you know, smaller farmers, independent farmers um, and, uh, you know, broader coalition of uh, rural progressives really care about uh, that, you know, the dairy record uh, might be a concern as well.
1: Yes. Well, I, I certainly I'm not a fan. And I'm not going to lie. I mean, when he came out of the gate with Kathleen Merrigan and they were all about know your farmer, know your food, I think we all thought, oh, great. You know, somebody's actually going to start addressing some of the systemic problems uh, in our agricultural sector. And as it turned out, Vilsack was just a tool for agribusiness. And I don't see anything changing. The only good thing about Vilsack is that the guy actually knows how to run the department Um You know, he's he's going to be up to speed fast and he'll be able to do, you know, hopefully the right thing uh, this time around uh, in a faster at a faster pace than somebody who was just starting from scratch and didn't know what the agency was capable of or what it was supposed to be in charge of. So, I mean, that's experience is about the only thing that recommends uh, Tom Vilsack in my mind, but. Um, You know, we'll hope for the best. Anyway, Leah, I guess I'll let you go after that. Thank you. I just want to thank you so, so much for being a regular guest on the show this year. It's been a joy and a delight. Uh, Even though (laughs) I wish you all the happiness in the coming year and we'll be talking in January. Have yourself a rack and frack and good holiday season there, girlfriend. Thanks, Katie. Have a good one. (laughs) Okay. So long for now.